0: Hi, this is Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. The National Zoo in Washington, D.C. gets some 2 million visitors from around the world every single year. Len Mento is the executive director of the Friends of the National Zoo, otherwise known as Fonz. She's responsible for making the visitor experience entertaining and engaging, but also leaving visitors a little better educated and potentially more engaged in conservation efforts. It's been nearly two centuries since the very first zoo opened its gates and so much has changed in every respect, including the need to balance carefully the demands of entertainment, education and conservation. Now, Lynn came to this role not from a career in zoology or a related field, but with a 30 year career in advertising, marketing, and membership, including as the head of partnerships and membership campaigns at the world's largest nonprofit, the AARP. Lynn's story and her varied experience informs her work and has given her great clarity on areas where women often hold themselves back or, at a minimum, just relate to the world very differently than men. We're going to be talking to Lynn this morning, not only about her work at the zoo, but also about her amazing career. So with that, I'm so happy to welcome Lynn Minto. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much, Laura. So happy to be here. So thrilled to have you. So let's start with what does it mean to be the head of the fawns? It's the most fascinating,
1: challenging, interesting, fulfilling job I've ever had, actually. At Friends of the National Zoo, we are effectively overseeing a big chunk of the zoo's operation. So it's um, everything from retail and food service and the renting of strollers and selling of maps and guides and greeting guests to managing the 1400 volunteer corps, to holding fundraising events and camps and classes and interacting with dc school systems as well as membership and donations so it spans a huge variety of things that i never thought five years ago i'd be working in and i am loving every minute of it what's the best part oh gosh Uh, To me, the best part is my source of passion right now, which is about saving species in the wild. So I know you know that we're in the middle of the sixth largest extinction and it is completely man-made and we need to rally together, all of us, across this community, across this country, across the globe Mm -hmm. and help change the trajectory of the planet's decline and a huge way to do that is by saving species in the ecosystem so as these animals become extinct, it may seem like it's not a big deal, what's one more bird species that's lost but it's a huge deal in the context of the ecosystem in which those birds live and the health of that ecosystem supports other species and in turn it helps support humans so for us to be here to save this planet for our children and children to come we need to be working on saving these species so that is the best part of my day working with these incredible Smithsonian scientists and wildlife veterinarians and endocrinologists and animal care experts who are dedicated to saving the planet by saving animals.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that. Because the bucket of conservation is mm. so broad, there mm-hmm. are so many dimensions. Talk a bit more in detail about where the National Zoo is really investing. And I'm sure it probably covers a lot of the different places where you can invest. But what's kind of the, the area where the biggest investment takes place? Mm-hmm.
1: There are, as you said, Laura, a lot of areas where the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute, its partner organization out in Front Royal, are working to save species. But if I had to highlight a few, I would say um, doing work in Asia for the preservation of animals like the Asian elephant and pangolins, which is the world's heaviest trafficked mammal. Mm -hmm. So preservation of animals, really, truly endangered animals in Asia And a little work in Africa, so expanding, for example, in the preservation of giraffes, which are surprisingly threatened in Africa. I think one of the most interesting areas that the zoo and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute are working on is this fascinating connection that um, we call global health or one health. And it's this intersection of animals and zoonotic disease. And human diseases. And we're seeing it right now with the coronavirus. Yeah. So there is a team of people who we help support, these Smithsonian scientists who are out in the field trying to figure out where the next zoonotic disease exists today and will likely jump to humans and then trying to get ahead of that, working with partners like USAID and other groups. Um, so for example, we support this wonderful man, Dr. Mark Vallatutto, who I was just talking to today actually. And Mark is uh, doing work in the caves in Vietnam where there are bats. And these caves are considered holy. So Mark is working in the community with the monks, going into the caves with the monks, helping the monks manage the poisonous snakes that are within the cave so that he and his team can be in there and um, collecting samples of guano, bat feces, Mm -hmm. and testing bats to understand what disease they have, and then working with the community to prevent that spread. So if you can determine a disease that a bat holds, such as coronavirus, Mm -hmm. You can help the community understand the value of not catching and eating the bats, for example. So that intersection of human health and people health is absolutely critical and more timely and relevant than ever. That's an example.
0: Yeah. Can you shed any more light on where coronavirus came from? I mean, We know that it originated with bats, but there's some speculation that there was yet another species, not of bats, but of something that frankly resembles an armadillo i'm from texas i don't know what the animal is but it looks like an armadillo but that there was some sort of transmission between the bat and this other animal and then ultimately to humans but was that because people were consuming the animals or do they have do, have they been able to to draw any conclusions as to exactly how Coronavirus got started. Mm,
1: I can't speak too definitively to, to this coronavirus, mm-hmm. but you are talking about the pangolin, which yeah. is the animal yes, I mentioned exactly. before, and it looks like oh, a little. Exactly. It's adorable. It Looks like a little armadillo. And in Eastern medicine, uh, they believe that the scales of the pangolin have curative powers. They don't. It's just keratin. Interesting. So they are. They are catching these pangolin, they are eating the pangolin, they are grinding up the scales, they make a pangolin soup, they grind up the scales, and they use that in medicine. And there is reason to believe that the pangolins, the bats and the pangolins, are purveyors of this coronavirus. And it speaks to this ecosystem that it is not just one animal, one species in isolation. They are all connected, and we need to do our best to preserve the collective health of the whole if we are to survive and leave a planet for our children.
0: Yeah. I mean, Lynn, that is so fascinating. So fascinating. Okay. So you have 2 million visitors, at least, who visit the National Zoo every year. They're coming in, kids, strollers, you know, people looking at animals. Take me on the journey of how you capture the mindset and attention of the average person or child and get them to the point where you can really educate them about the broader mission of the zoo. Yes.
1: We do this, FONS does this in partnership with uh, the folks in the National Zoo side responsible for exhibits and animal care. So we work very closely together to the end of guest experience and education, mm-hmm. which are the two things you're talking about, which are so critical for visitors to the zoo. Because
0: so, they have to have a good time. They have and to and have a good time. And sort of have to, you know, educate them on the side. That's think, right. right.
1: That's right. Sometimes we call it the cheese on the broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So um, when somebody comes into the zoo, Uh, We love all of our zoo visitors because they are there. And by their foot traffic, they are telling us, this is important to me. Animals are important to me. Wildlife is important to me. So we love every single one of them. So when they come in, we work to celebrate them, give them what they need and want in order to have a fun day at the zoo, but also help them understand the work that's happening in conservation as it relates to the animals that they're seeing. So it is completely wonderful to observe the scimitar horned oryx that are out by the cheetahs and just to sort of wonder at the beauty and majesty of these animals. But we also, our zoo partners are trying to tell the story through signage and through demonstrations from our wonderful animal care team that there is a real conservation story here that we'd like to open their eyes to. So in that case, for example, these scimitar horned oryx became extinct in Chad, their native country through fighting and poaching and bushmeat and all the rest of it. And the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute and several other organizations banded together to find scimitar horned oryxes in captivity, breed them over a long period of time, and then reintroduce them about three or four years ago back into Chad. So in fact, the director of the zoo, Dr. Steve Montfort was one of those men out in Chad, lifting up the cage of the scimitar-horned oryx as it galloped off into the deserts of Chad. And so that's, and now they're out there and they're breeding and it's wonderful. So that's a conservation success story. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we like to do is share the success stories of conservation as well because it can't be a total downer. You can't walk out of that experience thinking that it's all done for and let's put our head in the sands, kid, and buckle up in the basement. That is not what this is about. It's about the fact that there is time to change, we need to rally together to change, and there are successes, there are optimistic stories like that scimitar horned orcs. Mm-hmm. So we try to tell those stories throughout the course of their experience as they're walking down Olmstead Walk through exhibits, through animal demos, through interactions with our wonderful volunteer interpreters who are up and down Olmstead Walk and at the animal homes. Mm-hmm. So, um, So that's our goal from start yeah. to finish, telling a story.
0: It's expensive to run a zoo to yes. keep all of these animals in a captive situation. And the visitor has a pleasant experience and they're safe. How do you balance this with the you know evolution of technology, mm-hmm. virtual reality, mm-hmm. making the experience of visiting animals potentially much less expensive because you may or may not have a zoo situation mm-hmm. in the future? Talk mm-hmm. about how the National Zoo thinks about mm-hmm. how technology is evolving and kind of how you think about the future.
1: Yeah, we think about it a lot. So um, one of the things to note is there is a sense that um, – animals would be better off in the wild and the sad news is that there is no wild left that almost all land on this planet is owned or controlled by humans sometimes for the good of animals and preserves and sometimes a whole lot of times to the bad of animals so um this sense that animals and human care are worse off than animals in the wild is sadly most of the time simply not true so we look at the elephants for example so we have asian we don't have african elephants we have asian elephants and those asian elephants are getting into some serious conflict with the landowners in Mm -hmm. myanmar for example so they are trump that we are infringing on their space Mm -hmm. they are trampling on ground sometimes they are hurting villagers in the midst of all this chaos and they're being killed so we see horrible pictures uh weekly of slaughtered asian elephants so we'll have a tracker on an elephant we'll follow it and then the slaughter of this animal with the legs cut off mm-hmm. to, that um, are turned into tables and the tusks cut out that are turned into ivory the skin ripped off because they grind that up for eastern medicine it is horrifying laura so the sense that they're better off somewhere else is very sadly mm-hmm. most of the time not true one of the things about the animals animals in our care at the National Zoo is that they receive really the utmost animal care and welfare. So we have an entire team of veterinarians who are just focused on the care of these animals. And um, for example, Luke the lion has some arthritis. So he gets laser treatments very regularly (laughs) to help him. And he loves it. He loves his laser (laughs) treatments. (laughs) That's just a small example. But they're providing not only the same care you'd provide to your pet at the veterinarian when you take them to the vet, obviously. They're in your care and you're taking care of them that way. But also very special care of these animals. So uh, all that said, it's very expensive. And the most expensive component is the food. So yeah. the commissary, which is truly world leading at the National Zoo, supplies the food to the animals at the National Zoo and at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. And it's the largest budget item by far because the food is all restaurant quality. So the pro fish truck that's delivering <laughs> the seafood down here is also stopping off at the <laughs> National Zoo and delivering that's the amazing. seafood uh-huh, for the animals up there. So it's restaurant quality vegetables and produce and fish and meat. Um, And it's all prepared every morning at that commissary and these little recipes for all these variety of species that we have. It's the largest item on the budget. Mm -hmm. So we talk about what would happen in this future state where if we did not have animals, let's say we're certainly not going to release them to the wild to be slaughtered in this current environment. But let's say they all pass away and we don't replace any animals um, in our care. I think the world will lose something. There is a moment, and I see it, and maybe you've seen it, there is a moment when a child is looking face-to-face at, we'll take an elephant, for example, and seeing the majesty of that animal and then hearing about the horrors of what people are doing to it. It has a very different feeling when you smell them, when you see them, when you hear them, when you're right up close to them. And I think it sparks more empathy and awe that helps drive a future conservationist. Yeah. So that's our goal.
0: Yeah. What about partnerships? It's interesting. In a past episode, I had Professor Leslie Rule on. She's a a professor of ecology uh, at Texas Mm A&M University at the Bush School. And she's taking teams of students to places in Africa where they have experienced the precise thing that you're talking about, where the conflict between the farmers and the elephants is raging because the elephants are destroying crops, destroying villages, killing people, and they're finding ways to help them plant things that are Mm -hmm. not as appealing to the elephants Mm -hmm. and changing this dynamic. So talk to me about maybe partnerships with universities and Mm -hmm. others Mm -hmm. for, you know, you can't put every elephant in captivity, Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to find ways to coexist. So talk about what the zoo's mission is as it relates to animals that are actually existing in the wild and and navigating those conflicts that exist. Mm.
1: I'll give you a good example. In Myanmar with elephants, it's yeah. on a theme. So um, elephants in Myanmar were traditionally used for logging. So they were sort of working elephants. And they had mahouts, which are these... Trainers, friends, family—it's sort of a mishmash of almost like an owner of a dog. Where you have you have love, you care, you love. So these mahouts have these elephants, and they were doing logging work, and that has since stopped. So they are effectively unemployed elephants, (laughs) and they're mahouts in Myanmar. So one of the things that we are doing, the Smithsonian is doing, is partnering with other organizations. And figuring out what to do with those elephants so that they can effectively be reintroduced back into Myanmar. So they've grown up in human care the same way your dog probably wouldn't make it, sadly, much longer than a month out in Connecticut Avenue. These elephants need some care. So we have teams that are working at the Elephant Center, at the zoo, through the Smithsonian Biology Conservation Institute, and a variety of partners doing, creating personality tests for these elephants so these unemployed logging elephants, are running them through personality tests, and they are determining which of those elephants are most likely to survive in the wild, and that will be the first batch out. So they're looking for those that are inventive. Mm-hmm. So if they put a box in front of them, they want the one that's going to figure out that if I dig deep inside this box, I'm going to get that sweet fruit. Mm-hmm. They want the ones that are... Risk averse, So they don't want them too risky. They want the ones that are afraid of humans. So that's some real live work that's going on right now with partners in Myanmar for the sake of elephants. And speaking specifically about educational institutions, the Smithsonian, of course, is here for the increase in diffusion of knowledge. So there's lots of partnering with other world leading educational institutions. And the Smithsonian created a partnership with George Mason to create the Smithsonian Mason School of Conservation, which is out in Front Royal Mm -hmm. and dedicated to the education of uh, future conservation scientists.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Really fascinating. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about (laughs) and a lot of breadth. You had not worked in zoology, in zoo management of any kind, or any related fields up until this point, you had had a 30-year career in advertising and membership. Talk about how you got here. You mentioned that you absolutely love this job, but how did you get from Madison Avenue, essentially, to the National Zoo?
1: And I actually did work on Madison Avenue, so really (laughs) so true. Um, It was was a left turn, but... um, we need to embrace these left turns, right? Mm-hmm. There's magic in the left turn, I think. So uh, I was. But were
0: you planning it? Was no, it a- of course not, Laura.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. So I, I was working at ARP, uh-huh. running membership and a couple other groups, and um, and really enjoying it. There's a lot to love about that association, but also knew that I was meant to run an organization. I had more to give, and I'm sure you felt it, others have felt it. This sort of call that starts as a whisper and gets a little louder inside, like, hey, is this really what you're meant to be doing? Are you meant for something a bit larger? And so I was feeling it and hearing it and ignoring it like most women (laughs) do. (laughs) And then finally it reached a point where I said, I have to take this seriously. And I happened to be in Miami when I reached this decision that this was something I needed to do. I was at a conference. Was there a moment? There was a moment. So I was sitting, I was looking at the ocean in Miami and it was very quiet and maybe because it was quiet, I heard the voice louder than ever, and maybe it was just time. And I said, I'm going to do this. And I walked back inside to my room, and there on my laptop was an invitation from an executive recruiter saying that there's a position open at Executive Director of Friends of the National Zoo, and they'd love to meet with me. So I replied back right away that I would love to meet. And and the rest is sort of history. So it went very quickly, and I met with the board and um, the staff. And was offered the position and embraced it. So of course there's terror hidden in all the excitement because as you said, it was not my background, I knew membership very well. I knew leadership very well, team building. I understood the challenges that this fabulous, beautiful 60-year-old brand was facing. Um, so I had a lot of the background and kind of the innate skills, but nothing related to animals yeah. and, and zoos. But it's the sort of thing you plunge in and you learn as you grow and you draw from your past. And my first meeting, my first day, we were receiving emails about the panda. And I don't even know if I can say this on your show, but the email was about um, the size of the panda's vulva because that indicates (laughs) it was Crazy, Laura. I mean, it was a wake-up <laughs> call because that indicates, you know, right. is she is she ready that to breed, right. and is this sort of a magical moment <laughs> or not a magical moment? And it's all very serious. Of course, these are all the scientists, right. truly globally leading endocrinologists at the zoo working on this. And I thought, well, I have certainly woken up to a different environment, and from and it was it's been a blast. How from were there. You,
0: How were you received? Because you didn't come from their world. Yes, was that something that was? typical as it relates to your position, or did you have to kind of get them to buy into all the incredible strengths that you bring to this role, even though there were elements that you clearly, there was a learning curve for you? So so how did they receive you? Um, I
1: would say with a little bit of side eye, because for all the reasons you said, when I was brought on, the director of the zoo at the time was a man named Dennis Kelly, who had a business background. So Harvard MBA, ran Coca-Cola global marketing, that sort of thing. So he and I, unlike prior executive directors of Friends of the National Zoo, and I'm the first female leader of Friends of the National Zoo. Right. Yes. Yes kind of a shame over 62 years ago yeah. so yeah. but uh, Dennis and I spoke the same business language so it was easy to develop a bond with Dennis because we spoke the same language right. my two uh challenge points were with the animal care staff mm-hmm. who of course are these fabulous animal care people and animal people and I I looked like some foreign bird I looked like I was sort of way too flashy and high heels and suits and I just I looked like some foreign species my dear friend, who's the head of animal care and the deputy director of the zoo, Dr. Brandy Smith, said that they looked at me as some exotic and rare bird and sort of, you know, I have since toned down the wardrobe. (laughs) So I blend a bit more. But um, so it was gaining their trust. And how did you do that? It's really about showing trust and respect and an openness. So You cannot go in guns a-blazing, obviously, because they are the experts. I certainly wasn't the experts. So it was meeting with them, talking very specifically about my respect and admiration for what they do, and asking them to help me learn. It's humility right Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. But it's all very genuine because, of course, it's true. I knew nothing about it, and they knew everything about it. So it's disarming by meeting everyone at their level, expressing genuine humility, and being completely open to learning and growing from them. And then from the fons team, I have the most incredible team, and they've had ups and downs. So there were any, any time there's a change in leadership is a time of turmoil and confusion. So with my team, it was once again sort of, uh, you know, being utterly open and humble. And I here's what I know. I don't know this world. I will follow you. I trust you. I will follow you. You are here for a reason. Thank you for letting me lead. Um, So I think it's a combination of that level of openness. So for example, when I gave, I met with all of the staff the week before I started with a presentation about myself and what I was envisioning. And um, I put up a childhood photo of me. So it was me and my sister, Leslie, just holding hands in Connecticut, and I must've been two years old. And sort of this was me and here's a picture of me in my awkward teen years and I am an open book and here's what I love, I love my family. Um, I, I am so excited to be here. I'm so excited to grow from you, but know who I am at the core and then laying out expectations. So those expectations in that case were about my vision. So I see huge, I saw and continue to see huge potential in Fonds and very much want to take their work and their ability to the next level. So talking about that and then in some cases where it needs to be laying down some ground rules. So. Showing that you are there and in charge is also important, I think, to people at these points in time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, for example, my second weekend, there was a report that a Fonz employee was smoking in the zoo. And of course, that's utterly forbidden because those animals are in our care and those people who come through the zoo are in our care. And so I stood up at the next all staff and said, if I learn of a Fonz employee that's been smoking in the zoo, I will walk out and fire them on the spot. And so I think you have to kind of be clear about who you are, what your expectations are, that you're here to lead, you're here to follow. We're all in this together. And I, I think that's how you do it.
0: Yeah. Any any challenges that you perceive, given the fact that you're the first woman to hold this role?
1: Uh, I'm going to say no. So the thing about the animal care world is it is primarily female. Mm, interesting. So Dr. Brandy Smith runs a team that is primarily not exclusively, but I would say 60, 70% women. So it is a field that is comfortable with women. And in the conservation science world, it is a, you a know, fairly even split, I would say, from what I've seen between men and women. So on that side, I would say no. And on the side of the Amazing Fawns team, I would also say no.
0: In terms of how your staff is divided, a big part of the staff is volunteer, or you have a volunteer corps, and then you have full-time staff. Mm-hmm talk about the differences and the challenges mm-hmm. of motivating and leading a volunteer staff most people understand how you lead full-time employees yep. but leading volunteers is a whole different ball game yes. talk about your approach to that
1: yes yeah, so we have about 80 salaried staff full-time staff when we have part-time staff and we can flex up to in peak season about 200 225 paid fond staff throughout the zoo and then we have about 1400 volunteers so fortunately i have an incredible volunteer management team a conservation education team and they have been managing this fleet of volunteers for decades and these volunteer i am in awe of these volunteers so they are dedicating their time their energy their brain power their commitment their passion to ensuring that these visitors to the zoo are learning something, walking away with little education, and having a wonderful time but they are also doing things behind the scenes so some of the volunteers are keeper aides. so you won't see them out on the walk they're not talking to people but they are assisting the keepers with things like any work behind the scenes and animal care the paid animal care team at the zoo I don't think could do their job without the keeper aides. so they're fulfilling a very specific role and then they're doing things like behavior watch so if you have ever walked into the panda house and you've seen the people who are operating the panda cam those are all fawns volunteers they're doing behavior your watch work where they are writing reports on the behavior of various animals at the request of the animal care team to help with the care of the animals. They're operating the panda cam. So they're doing amazing things. They're up there in the commissary at five thirty in the morning, chopping up melon and getting the frozen rats out of the freezer. I mean, these people are amazing. And, um, The management of them in so many ways is more about following them, following and supporting them as opposed to managing them. So it's about ensuring that they have what they need to be successful and feel fulfilled in their volunteer jobs, that they'll continue to come back. It's ensuring that we're showing them the respect and admiration that they completely deserve, despite how crowded and busy it might be at an event or at the zoo on a beautiful July afternoon. Um, And it's about ensuring that those around them are showing them the respect and care that they deserve. So the other zoo employees, for example. So it's really more about that, making sure that they have what they need to be successful than the management of them.
0: So we mentioned earlier that you started your career in advertising Mm -hmm. on Madison Avenue. Give me a sense of some of the lessons or maybe a lesson that Mm -hmm. you learned in that context that you still bring to bear on your work at the National Zoo. Hmm. So one of the
1: big lessons that I learned early on painfully was the importance of building social capital. So the importance of ensuring that the people that you are working with know that you care about them, like them as individuals, respect them, want to know them a bit more. Um, And that was particularly important in advertising. I was a peon, an utter peon in the account executive role where I was not liked by anyone. So the creative people sort of ruled the roost and thought you were just this ridiculous suit that was getting in their way of fantastic award-winning work. And then the clients, on the other hand, were questioning what you were delivering to them because it came from a creative point of view that they didn't understand. So you were really kind of betwixt in between it was a great way to learn skills about management and particularly in a matrix environment. But um, one of the painful lessons I learned early on in the building of social capital was when it saved my butt from an absolute disaster. <laughs> so I had so I was just starting out in advertising and my client was Colgate Palmolive. So they were on Park Avenue.
0: That's a big client.
1: It's a big client. And we had, back in the day, print ads were done, were hand done in this mechanical form. So you had an art director sitting down at his desk with an X-Acto knife and tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces of type and he would cut out like the little, little A and put it in there with his exacto knife and glue it down and then the C and cut it out and put it in there and glue it down. It was a long and laborious process. And then the original artwork would go in, and then you'd cover it all with an acetate, and that was called a mechanical. And you brought that to the client for final approval, and then that's what was actually shipped to the magazine, and that's what they used in the printing process to put your ad within the magazine. So Gus was the art director, Cranky Gus. So all of the young account executives feared Gus, and Gus was the Cranky art director on this particular Colgate-Palmolive print ad, and it was my job as the junior account executive to get the client... I called up Pamalov to approve this ad, and this was um, on a Monday. And the Friday before, I had remembered that Gus's daughter was having a birthday party that weekend, and so when I went in to collect the mechanical. I asked Gus how his daughter's birthday was. And I think he was, you know, a bit taken aback that I remembered, smiled, and gave me the whole rundown on the party as he was handing me the mechanical. And I said, OK, it's in good hands. And off I went. But, oh, Laura, it was not in good hands. So I went over
0: to Colgate from all over. Because you have to physically take this. Physically. It is a
1: physical. And this it's was a work of art, effectively. What
0: year? Obviously, we're, this was not digital. This it was, was not. This was in the
1: 80s, in the 1980s. This was it. This was all, all we had. This little one. The original one. Work of art, and so it had rained that day, and I was why I had put it in a in a Manila envelope, and I'm walking down. I had just turned onto Park Avenue to go to Colgate Palmolive, and I could see the building off to my left, and I slipped. <laughs> I was probably wearing these ridiculous high heel <laughs> shoes, which I have since stopped wearing. You probably my exotic adorable. bird shoes. You
0: <laughs> might have you looked adorable, but
1: <laughs> so I tripped and fell down on the sidewalk on Park Avenue, half on the gutter on Park Avenue, half on the sidewalk. But I could care less about myself and how splattered I was, but the manila envelope in slow motion went splat down onto Park Avenue and opened up. And I looked up and I could see these tiny little letters floating off down the gutter in Park (laughs) Avenue and I realized that I just destroyed the mechanical and this opportunity to get it approved and make this print insertion date. And then probably worse of all, I had to walk back and face Gus, who would have to recreate this thing in time for this deadline, so stay up all night working on this thing. So I gathered up what I could of the mechanical, went into the lobby sobbing, and of course dripping with gunk and muck and wet, and said they must have thought I was insane and said I had to cancel the meeting. And then I did this long, slow, 1,000-year walk back to the advertising (laughs) agency to face (laughs) Gus. (laughs) And I went downstairs. And of course, I looked fright, So you can picture like the the hair and the mascara down the face with the rain. So there must have been some sympathy factor at play too. But I'm <laughs> utterly convinced it was social capital that saved my ass. And so I just went up to Gus and presented the mechanical. And he didn't have to, you know, I, I hardly had to say anything. And he didn't have to see anything more to know that this was disaster. And he looked enraged and then softened. And I said, I am so 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 sorry and i will stay here with you all night and fix this and he softened and he said we all make mistakes and i'll do this one and i walked away and you know it was one of those moments you're young in your career and you think well this is over i am gonna pack my bags and move back to New Jersey because clearly I'm not surviving this. And you survive these things by the value of social capital. I'm utterly convinced that because I had remembered it was Gus's daughter's birthday the weekend before, that softened him up enough not to absolutely slaughter me when I made his life a living hell for the next 48 hours. So there is something very important about that social capital. And of course, it has to be genuine. It can't be a faked thing. You genuinely have to care about Their families, their life, their children, what's going on in their world. Is their mom sick? You really have to remember and care about this. And it will take you so far in your career and save you from so many potential slaughters. Sure.
0: Talk about, because you've worked with teams of men and women, Mm -hmm. talk about differences that you have seen.
1: In my career, I've had the opportunity, as you said, Laura, to observe both men and women obviously at work. And I'm a big fan of women. Love men. have nothing against men, but I'm a big fan of women and women in the workforce. I think they are incredible. There is research that shows that if you play up your strengths, you will get farther than if you focus your time on fixing all of your weaknesses. And I think that women bring inherent strengths into that workforce that we should be playing up. We have a very clear sense of a north star and what is right and i'm not saying men don't but i feel like there is it's a continuum and in general women have an easier chance of holding on to a what's right north star and if we do that if we all take that seriously through the course of our day at work it is incredible how much easier tough decisions are and tough situations become so it becomes i am having this tough conversation i am giving that constructive feedback Who knows, I am laying that person off. I am fighting for a point that is very unpopular and others don't believe in Mm -hmm. because you know that that is right. And If you rest in that, that is a very, very powerful thing. I think that women are very good at multitasking and keeping a lot of things in the air and getting things done, so play up on that strength as well. One of the areas that I think are sort of low-hanging fruit where women can make small tweaks to take a page from a man's notebook Mm -hmm. is something like salary negotiation. I rarely have a woman push back on a salary that I am offering up to them. And I almost always have a man push back on that same salary. At AARP, I pulled the women in my group together and I said, I wish you had not just accepted my job offer. Stop being so amenable. The thing about job offers is, and men get this, in a way that women for some reason don't yet. So here's my call to the women out there. Ask for more money in a negotiation and do it with a clear conscience. It is the employer's responsibility to ensure that they are bringing in the right person, their number one choice, at the best value that they can for the organization, because we have a fiduciary responsibility to the organization. It is our job to figure out what's the lowest amount that will get you to yes in Mm -hmm. other words to bring you in but it is equally your job as the prospective employee to know what your number is that makes you happy and fulfilled with yes because i as the employer don't want you coming in feeling begrudged, dissatisfied, disgruntled, why didn't I get more money? That is your job. You sometimes feel as an interviewee that you don't have power. You absolutely control that power and you have to remember that and you have to use that power. So my job is to say to you as the prospective employer, love you, here's the job offer, this is the position and here's the salary. And that salary may be exactly what you were Mm -hmm. looking for. But if that salary is below what you were hoping for, it is absolutely your job to say back to me, um, thank you so much, I'm so excited about this opportunity, I think it'll be wonderful, I think these are the things I can bring to it. That salary does not fit within my guidelines, though. Can we talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Your job is to do that to me. And so when I push an offer in front of a woman, I am secretly saying, oh, please don't accept it. Please don't accept it.
0: Please don't accept it. (laughs) And invariably, they do. But don't you think, too, like you're you're 100% spot on. But don't you think, too, there's a step before you even get to the point of negotiating for yourself in really... Internalizing your value. Yes. Right? That yes. women, for whatever reason, have a harder time sometimes they internalizing that value. We just had Jenny Brzezinski on the podcast, mm-hmm. who's written this tremendous book along with her sister-in-law Mika, who started this Know Your Value platform. Yes. And and the focus is precisely on what you're talking about, but it's also on that step before you even get to salary negotiation that says you got to really understand what you're bringing to the table and own that and for women they to your point your earlier point about really owning that and having that as your north star and what is your vision of what you can accomplish those two things i think have to be married don't you think
1: yeah oh absolutely and you are right that men inherently walk in with more confidence and women inherently do not walk in with more confidence so Absolutely understanding your value and knowing what your salary requirements are. But also, Laura, at the end of the day, it's practicing by simply asking for more. Yeah. So it almost doesn't matter if you get the 5000 or you don't get the 5000 because that salary offer may have been the top that they could afford. But you asked for that. And just asking for that signals to me as the employer, this is a person who is not afraid of uncomfortable situations. This is a person who supports herself and presumably will support my organization in public this is a winner. So women feel uncomfortable with it. Employers applaud it. You may get it, you may not get it, but we applaud the chutzpah, the confidence, the standing up for yourself.
0: Let's dig deeper into this notion of confidence. Yeah. Because you're exactly right. It really starts from that standpoint. What do you do when your confidence lags? Hmm. What's your toolkit or your go-to? Like, how do you pull yourself up when you've just been kicked in the pants and you're like, doggone it, you know, I really screwed that up. And and you just, sometimes you have to wallow in it a bit, but how do you pull yourself back?
1: Yes, totally agree with that. And Lord only knows, I've done it a thousand times. So to me, one and this is an example of how women and men are different in the workplace as well, in general. I'm mm-hmm. making generalities. In general, when a situation goes poorly, a man on average will blame just the situation. That was screwed up, that wasn't fair, Um, they didn't do this that they were supposed to be doing and therefore put me in this situation. A woman in general will do that. She will acknowledge the situation, but she will also partly blame and question herself, going back to that confidence level.
0: Maybe largely blame herself. Maybe
1: largely. And so to me, Laura, one of the things that I have learned is um, a phrase that I say to myself, which helps me in these situations, and I say to myself, is this perfect? Did this go perfectly? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But could anybody have done it reasonably better? no they couldn't and then you just have to rest in that and be confident in that and then that allows you then to put that self-doubt behind you so you can move forward because that's your job you're not being paid to have self-doubt you are paying being paid to figure out how to move this forward and so you need to put that behind you take a page from a man's notebook put that thing behind you as quickly as you can and focus on the next solution
0: one of your other pieces of advice that you shared with me, and not to steal your thunder, but it revolves around perhaps an inclination for women to be the default party planner. Yes. Talk about <laughs> what you mean by that.
1: Oh, I can't stand it. You see it all the time. And I've certainly been guilty. I've been guilty of all these things I'm talking right. about. But,
0: well, we um, do love, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of women love to plan parties. Of course it's they fun. do. All oh, that's great. And why we're is are very good right, at it. Why is that a bad thing? So I...
1: Always say to avoid the party planning trap because, as you said, women. if there's an environment, a work environment where there are women and there are men together and something comes up that requires some kind of party, be it a work party, a social party, a employee recognition event, whatever it may be, invariably the men sit there when there's a call for volunteers and who's going to ma- manage it. The men will sit there rightfully and look around and say, hmm, don't know eyes will go to the women the women will sense that vacuum know that they can do it and say oh okay I will do it raise the hand be a pleaser and raise their hand and it is lovely for those who do it and who love doing it that is lovely and we need that but I strongly encourage women to avoid the party planning trap and to just sort of take a page from a man's notebook sit back and kind of enjoy the vacuum so when the call comes up for this just like a man feels the right to just sit back and look around the room and who's going to plan the party. A woman has that exact same right to do it. And the more we perpetuate this myth, the worse off we are going to be and future generations are going to be. It has to be the the sense that this is women's work, Mm -hmm. right? Party planning Mm -hmm. needs to be abolished. So I say, avoid the party planning trap. Just rest in that vacuum.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. Okay, Lynn, last question. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a Mm. mantra. Maybe it can be to your earlier point, your North Star, something that you tell yourself, something that you tell your children. What would be yours?
1: When uh, Veronica, my daughter, got her driver's license, she had just gotten her driver's license. And I was reading a story, a terrible story in the newspaper about a group of girls, 16, 17-year-old girls who had just gotten their license. And they were driving on 495, and they missed their exit. And so they swerved to get onto their exit, and they were hit by another car, and several of them passed away. Horrible, right? So I ran downstairs downstairs i told Veronica, who is in her room, that there is always a place to turn around. Never forget, Veronica, there is always a place to turn around. You are never trapped. And I meant it in the context of driving. And we right. talked about in the context of driving. But my kids now say it to me all the time in the context, mocking me, of course, but in the context <laughs> of life, that there is always a place to turn around. It's you beautiful. are never trapped. So that might be my personal advice.
0: I love that. That's terrific. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura. This is wonderful. Really, really loved it. To learn more about Lynn Mento, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 87. You can also find our entire lineup of inspiring guests, including Lynn, who provide great insight, perspective, and advice, no matter what your personal journey may be. I'd also love to hear from you. So please send me a note via the contact link on the website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com or you can email me at laura at LauraCoxKaplan.net. As always, and most importantly, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this growing community of women who are having a positive impact on others every single day.